I used to think that an introvert is somebody who doesn't like to be around people and that an extrovert is somebody who does. But a few years ago, I found out that that's not exactly true. And, and we should say that somebody's not purely an introvert or purely an extrovert. There's a spectrum with this being you know, sort of 100% introverted on one side and 100% extroverted on the other side. And, and you can be just a little bit extroverted or just a little bit introverted. Or there's a word for somebody who's sort of right in the middle on the spectrum. That person is called an ambivert. So if you're asking the question, am I an introvert or an extrovert? You're not actually, actually asking whether or not you like to be around people or not. It has everything to do with what gives you energy and what drains your energy. So an introvert is somebody who finds that being around other people drains their energy. So it has nothing to do with whether or not they like to be around other people. There could be an introvert that really likes to be around people, but they find it really tiring. And being alone is what helps them to sort of rest and recuperate and recharge. And an extrovert is the opposite. An extrovert is somebody who gains energy from being around people and being by themselves. They find that to be very draining. And this whole pandemic and the isolation that so many of us have been in for so long has really brought this to the fore. And people have learned who they are. It's been very difficult for extroverts. Meanwhile, a lot of introverts are probably living their best lives because being alone is something that already even if, even if they like to be around other people, it certainly leaves them feeling sort of refreshed and full of energy when they get some solace, some time alone. And I thought it might be an interesting question to ask, do we think that Jesus was more introverted or extroverted? And just on the face of it, you might say that, well, maybe, he's, maybe he was more of an extrovert because of the, the brief period of his life that we have on record for us in the Gospels, it's just three years of his life, he spends so much of it with other people, sometimes large groups of other people. But I'm not sure that that tells us the whole story, and I'm not sure that you can really answer this question sort of in a definitive way either, but I think that the question you would really want to ask is, what does, what does it look like Jesus did to recover when he was exhausted emotionally, mentally, maybe physically, what did he do to sort of recharge his batteries? And when we ask that question, we see sort of a different picture emerge. And, and we actually see a theme throughout his, his whole ministry. Early in Jesus' ministry, when, when the Bible says that people were just kind of finding out about him and, and crowds were gathering to come hear him and be healed by him. It says that it was his practice to withdraw to solitary places and pray. That's Luke chapter 5 and verse 16. And right before Jesus would give the sermon on what we call the Sermon on the Mount, he would go up a mountain to get away from a large crowd of people. That's Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And right before he would speak to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus was alone resting by a well, and he had sent his disciples into the town to, to buy food while he stayed behind, presumably to rest. That's John chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. Right before he fed the 5,000, Jesus had withdrawn to a solitary place to, 
mourn the death of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. And right after that, after he fed the 5,000, he would send his disciples on ahead, dismiss the crowd, and go up into a mountain to pray alone. And later that evening, he'd go walk on water. That's Matthew chapter 14, verse 23. And on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus would ask his disciples to stay put while he went a short distance away to be alone and pray. That's Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. And all of that would suggest to me that, that perhaps Jesus was a little bit more introverted than extroverted. And when he needed to recharge, he would go and find a place alone to do that. Now, tuck that away. That's going to be important in a few minutes. And, and you're, you're well aware of the title of this class. We're talking about anger and how to deal with anger like Jesus did. And so come with me to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read from the, the ESV tonight. These are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Now, the law, the law of Moses condemned murder. But in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would take it one step further. He would condemn the, even the feelings that led to murder, anger, and hatred. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, we just read, it says that whoever's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. What does that mean? And there's some evidence within the Jewish oral tradition that, that at this time, actually using insults against your, your brother or your, your fellow, your neighboring Jew, was punishable by sort of, you know, uh, maybe public service or, you know, sort of a minor punishment, a period of penance. That may be what Jesus was referring to here. But then at the end of verse 22, Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And some of you may know that that word hell in the Greek is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a Greek word that, that was a metaphor. In this case, I believe, a metaphor describing somebody whose anger completely consumes them. What Jesus is saying is, if you're the kind of person who goes around saying nasty things about people, who makes a habit of that, then you're going to be consumed by your anger. It's going to take you over. And, and then Jesus makes this pretty profound statement in verses 23 and, and 24. He says, if you're on your way to worship God, and, and at this time that meant bringing your gift to the altar, but you realize that you're holding a grudge against somebody, your brother, then stop, leave your gift there. Don't go through with that, that worship service. Leave it there and go and reconcile with your brother. Fix the problem that you have before you go and worship God. And it's, 
It's a profound statement because what Jesus seems to be saying here is that living in harmony with and loving those around us is more important to God than actually worshiping him. And the Bible is pretty clear that God wants us to worship him. As important as that is to God, it is even more important to him that we live in harmony with each other, that we don't hold grudges against each other. And note in, in these verses that we just read that Jesus does not say that the emotion itself, that anger itself is sinful. But, but what he insinuates is that it's dangerous and that it needs to be dealt with. He says, don't let it burn. Don't let it consume you. Don't let it burn you up. Don't be the kind of person who, who is, is constantly angry, who's prone to, to fits of anger and outbursts. And he's really drawing on an Old Testament principle in the law in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And it may well have been that many Jews read that passage and thought that, well, he's talking about my neighbor. That means my, my fellow Jewish citizen, the person who looks like me and believes like I do. But, but lest we be prone to thinking that as well, Jesus told a parable all about that. And when the, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor, after saying that one of the two most important commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. These two men, the, 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 the Jewish man who had been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road and the Samaritan were very different from each other. They had different beliefs. These were two groups that didn't like each other very much. And the point of that parable seems to be that our neighbor is anybody that we rub shoulders with, not just the person that looks like us, not just the person that thinks like us or believes like us, but everyone. That seems to be the point. Now, come with me to another passage. It's Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ecclesia at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And Paul starts this train of thought by saying that, first of all, let's be honest with each other. And by implication, honest with each other, I think, and with ourselves about who we are. Being mature adults and followers of Jesus means understanding ourselves, understanding how, how we work, under, identifying our moods and, and learning how to control them. And Paul is clear here as well that the anger itself is not the sin. 
In verse 26, you see that? He says, be angry and do not sin. It's not the anger that's the sin, but it's the problems that arise when we let the anger take over. And that's why I think he says this. He writes this in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. The diabolos is the word in, in the Greek, the adversary, that figurative serpent that's inside of us. You see, one of the things that separates us as human beings from animals is our ability to overcome our basic instincts, to be moral. This is the bit of God within us that we want to cultivate. And psychologists have, have discovered that, that we've sort of got two parts to our brain, and this is separate from sort of the left brain, right brain functions. Think of this as a totally different subject. They describe it as, as the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain. And the downstairs brain is, is the part of our mind that's kind of like our, our animal brain or our lizard brain. It's, it's the part where, where our animal instinct kind of comes from and our, our sort of harmful and, and, and all-consuming emotions like anger or hatred, they are, are coming out of our downstairs brain. But the upstairs brain is our higher function, our, our rational nature. And it turns out that children, especially young children, their upstairs brain is very much a work in progress. It's, it's under construction. And that's why we see, especially those of us who are parents of young children, sometimes quite often we see our children just sort of consumed by their emotions, whatever it is that, it, that has uh, made them angry or, or sad or even happy, you know, they're overcome by it. And that emotion just takes right over their upstairs brain is not built really at all. It's just a work in progress. And as they grow up and become teenagers, you know, it'll get more and more um, put together upstairs until finally, as adults, we hope that we have fully functioning upstairs brains. And it's, it's entirely possible for us to control our animal instincts, our downstairs brain, with our upstairs brain, because that upstairs brain is really the part of God inside of us. It's that bit of us that allows us to overcome that diabolos inside of us. That, I believe, is figuratively what Paul is talking about here, giving no room to the devil. Do not let your anger consume you because when we let the diabolos take over, we're letting our baser animal instincts take the wheel and drive. So how do we do that? It's easy, it's easy to say that, right? But, but what does that look like in practice? And what do we know about it? How can we condition ourselves to, to you know, sort of think with that part of our brain that is more moral and spiritual that God has given us that, that separates us from, from all of the rest of creation. And to start, I want to tell you about a, a pretty interesting psychological experiment. We'll call it the, the cookies and radishes experiment. You could go on YouTube and, and watch about this as well. It's a real experiment that took place. And, and psychologists gathered together a, a group of students. They broke them into two groups and they put them together in a lab. In the middle of the lab was a table. And on the table were two bowls. One bowl was filled with cookies and the other bowl was filled with radishes. One group was told, okay, while you're in this room, don't touch any of the cookies. You can eat as many radishes as you want, but you can't touch the cookies. And to the other group, the psychologist said, okay, you can have as many cookies as you want, but don't touch the radishes. 
And then they left them in this room for a period of time, long enough for them all to get hungry. And they watched to see what happened. And, and of course, the cookie eaters weren't tempted at all by the radishes. They could eat as many cookies as they wanted when they got hungry. But the radish eaters, hard as it was to not eat the cookies and only eat the radishes, every single one of them was able to maintain their willpower and resist the temptation of eating the cookies. So finally, phase one of the experiment was over. The psychologist came in. And they said, okay, thank you very much. That was phase one. Now we're going to, going to go into phase two of the experiment. In phase two, all of the participants were given a task to complete. It was a task that was designed to be impossible, but they weren't told that. It was something like they're given a, a maze on a piece of paper and they had to complete the maze without lifting their pencil off the paper at all. It wasn't possible to complete this task. What the psychologists really wanted to see was how long these participants would, would persist at trying to complete an impossible task. And the results were pretty striking. The, the group of people who were the cookie eaters, who were allowed to eat as many cookies as they wanted, they lasted on average 19 minutes trying to complete that impossible task. Whereas the radish eaters on average lasted only eight minutes. Big difference between the two. Here's what psychologists learned from this, that what we call willpower or self-control is an exhaustible resource. Think of it like a tank of fuel that you have inside of you. You might start out with it full, but if we find ourselves in a, in a situation which requires us to use self-control, then it's going to slowly get burned up. What that means is that there is a limit for every single one of us. There is not a human being in existence that has an unlimited amount of willpower or self-control. We will, every single one of us, run out. Some of us might have a bigger tank than others, a larger reserve than others, but eventually all of us will run out of self-control if we find ourselves in a situation that requires us to use self-control and we stay in that situation for a long enough time. What psychologists have also found is, is that practicing even the simplest act of willpower makes us better across the board when it comes to, to using self-control. So willpower is kind of like a muscle. If you exercise it, you can make it stronger and you can build up sort of your reserves of willpower. And in other psychological experiments, spouses who practiced a week of using their non-dominant hand were found to be a lot less likely to snap at each other and, and, and verbally or emotionally abuse each other. It also turns out that when we feel guilty about something, that it makes us harder for us to resist temptation. So if you fail in some way and you're carrying around that guilt because of that failure, that's burning up your self-control, carrying around that guilt with you. Meaning that the next time, that you face that same temptation, you're gonna be more likely to give into it because you are already on almost empty. So those of us who can learn to forgive ourselves have a much better chance of resisting temptation in the future. It also means that some of us are walking around with self-control on empty all the time. And you may know people in your life, or maybe you're one of them. Certainly I find myself in that position often right now with, with uh, two very energetic children, where I feel like my self-control is just on empty all the time. And, and these people are, are just losing it all the time. They're, they're snapping at you very quickly. They seem to always be on edge. 
give those people the benefit of the doubt because there's almost certainly something in their life that's just constantly burning up their self-control and leaving them with an empty tank. So back to what we talked about at the beginning of the class, knowing whether or not you are an introvert or an extrovert can help you to understand what you need to do to recharge your self-control. And if you're an introvert, that means recognizing, first of all, recognizing when, when you've been in a difficult position for a while, maybe your self-control is quite low, and you need to find a place to recharge. It means getting away from people, finding some solace, and taking a little bit of time to, to make sure that you're ready to go back out and be more like Jesus, be a less angry person. And if you're an extrovert, of course, the opposite is true. It means especially in these difficult times where for a long time we haven't been able to see people, maybe it means calling somebody up on the phone or, or having a Zoom call with somebody, finding somebody that you like to spend time with or a group of people and scheduling a call. Whatever that means for you, you need to take responsibility for yourself and your reserve of self-control. Otherwise, you'll be the kind of person who's always having angry outbursts who, when confronted with a difficult situation or when confronted by somebody else who is very angry, you yourself will just fuel that anger and you'll give right, give, give right into it. So what should we do in a really difficult situation in the moment when we're confronted maybe by a person, somebody's, maybe somebody's really angry at us or, or doing something that we think is, is really frustrating or ignorant, and, and we find our self-control running dangerously low, how do we respond to these situations when we, when we have very little time to react? What do we do about our anger? Well, there's a couple of things that psychologists have discovered that aren't very healthy for us to do that maybe we do a lot. So I'll start out by listing those two things. The first thing that we probably should not do with our anger, especially in a difficult moment like that, is repress it. Don't just push it down deep inside of you and hold, bottle it in there until you explode. This tends to make it worse, and it's also very unhealthy for us. Now, that one might have been obvious to most of us, but the next one, I didn't find it so obvious. Apparently, it's also not very healthy for us to vent about it. So we might think that finding somebody who we're friends with, who we can confide in to vent about, a, maybe a person or a situation, to what, get it out of our system. But actually, that tends to not be the case. Doing, venting about it actually tends to amplify our negative emotions and, and potentially even stir up anger in, in the other person that we're confiding in. So, so also don't vent. Don't, don't use venting as an outlet for, for trying to get rid of your anger. It's not a particularly healthy or helpful way to do it. There's a, there was a famous American psychologist named Albert Ellis, who's quoted as having said, you don't get frustrated because of events. You get frustrated because of your beliefs. In other words, you get angry at people because of the story you tell yourself about them, like he's an egomaniac or she's so selfish or he's a bully. And you're telling yourself those stories because of events that have happened with that person in your life, but it's the story you tell yourselves about them. It's the way that you interpret it that makes you angry. And there was a series of experiments. You can tell I like 
to read about psychological experiments. They were called the Oshner's reappraisal experiments. And participants in this experiment were hooked up to an fMRI machine. That's one of those uh, machines that has all these nodes that get hooked up to your head. And then scientists watch on a monitor, they watch your brain activity. So participants in these experiments were, were hooked up to an fMRI machine and they were shown a photograph. They're all shown the same photograph of people crying outside of a church. And the researchers watched as, as the participants were shown this photograph, they watched their amygdala, which is the part of our brain that processes strong emotions. They watched as, as that just sort of, sort of went, went uh, berserk with activity as, as they were empathizing with what looked like sorrow and people mourning outside of a church. It looked like a funeral. But then the researchers told the participants that this actually is a photograph of a wedding and that these are tears of joy that they're seeing. And the researchers watched in every single case as the amygdala of the participants calmed right back down to normal levels. And this, this, what this is called is reappraisal. They were seeing this photograph from a different point of view. All of a sudden they saw it in a different way. And reappraisal is a very effective technique for managing, managing our anger in the moment, especially when it comes to dealing with difficult people. So this is what that looks like, reappraisal. The next time you find yourself faced with this kind of a difficult situation, let's say somebody's really angry at you and, and they're yelling at you about something that really isn't your fault and it's not fair and every fiber of your being wants to let them know how unfair it is and you want to respond in kind and you want to be angry, reappraise the situation. What that means is tell yourself a story about this person that gives them the benefit of the doubt. Tell yourself they must be having a really bad day or they're probably dealing with some very heavy things right now and make up a story of what that could be. It doesn't actually have to be true because the reality is even if the story you make up about them in your head and if it's a stranger, you might not know anything about them. But whatever story you're making up about them, if it gives them the benefit of the doubt, there probably is a true story to explain why they are so angry that does give them the benefit of the doubt. But the very act of, of coming up with a story in your head distracts your downstairs brain. It actually kicks your upstairs brain. Remember that part of us that is like God, that God has given us that separates us from the animal kingdom, the spiritual part of us, the rational and moral part of us. It engages the upstairs brain. And the very act of doing that shuts down the downstairs brain. And it becomes impossible for our downstairs brain to function when our upstairs brain is in high gear. And so the, the act of creation in your head as you make up the story about them that gives them the benefit of the doubt is kicking your upstairs brain into high gear and shutting down your downstairs brain, which means shutting down your anger, because that's where your anger lives is in your downstairs brain. Making up that story is, is forcing you to be creative in the same way that Although this is not nearly as practical, if you were to start just to do math equations in your head, that would also kick your upstairs brain into gear and your downstairs brain would be incapable of functioning. So in a very scientific way, as well as in a very forgiving Christ-like spiritual way, 
making up a story that gives this person the benefit of the doubt is, is very effective in the moment at dealing with your anger about a situation. And we all know, we can probably all recite Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And most of us have probably done this right at least once in our lives, found ourselves in a situation where somebody was mad at us, and maybe we didn't think it was fair, and maybe we really wanted to shout right back at them and tell them how wrong they were, but instead of doing that, we said, I'm sorry, I didn't think of it that way. Please forgive me, I was wrong. And for most people who are angry, it's almost impossible for them to remain angry in the face of such humility. And using this technique of reappraisal is a very effective way to exercise the advice in Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1. Proverbs chapter 17, just a couple of chapters later, verses 27 and 28, the truly wise person restrains his words, and the one who stays calm is discerning. Even a fool who remains silent is considered wise, and the one who holds his tongue is deemed discerning. And probably most of you, like me, have found, you in a, found yourself in a situation at some point where you didn't do this and you lived to regret it. You instantly opened your mouth and said whatever came first to your mind and have lived to regret it. And so if you find yourself in this difficult situation and, and it takes you a minute to reappraise and calm down, take that minute. Don't open your mouth. Wait until you have calmed down. Even a fool, remember, even a fool who stays quiet is thought to be wise. Jesus exercised this principle. All of these things that we've talked about, Jesus seemed to naturally know how to do this. He figured it out. And time and time again, when his opponents were angry to the point of violence, he simply walked away. He didn't confront anger with anger. He didn't say a word. Now, imagine how angry he could have been in that moment. How angry maybe he even was for a split second. They had, they had taken calculation and planning to catch this woman in the act and use this poor woman to get at Jesus, to undermine his message. They potentially ruined her life just to get at him. Imagine how angry that could have made him. And as they continued to demand that he tell them what to do about it, first of all, he didn't say anything at all. He just stooped down and he wrote something in the dirt. Then he stood back up and he said one thing. He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That's all he said. And from the eldest to the youngest, they walked away. And not until recently did I notice that little detail that it was the eldest among them in the crowd that walked away first. And I got to think that detail is there for a reason. It seems to me that those who have lived longer have just made more mistakes and a more, more of a variety of mistakes. They've got a larger catalog of categories of mistakes that they've made to the point where, you know, it, it becomes it becomes likely that most mistakes they watch other people made, make, they have already made themselves. 
And so it makes sense to me that it would be the oldest among them that would first realize how hypocritical they were being. Jesus was essentially saying to them, who do you think you are to be angry with this woman? Have you never lost control before? Of course, none of them could say that. He reminded them that when you point the finger in judgment, there will always be three fingers pointing back at you. When his enemies encouraged disdain for sinners, Jesus told them stories to make them reassess how they saw those sinners. When they hit him, he turned the other cheek. He responded to violence with healing. And when they were killing him, he forgave them. Jesus would say, Matthew chapter 11, or sorry, Mark chapter 11, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness releases your anger. It reduces your blood pressure. It improves your heart rate. It results in fewer medications. It eliminates negative physical symptoms. And all of this is not an accident. It's not an accident that we live in bodies that are designed to be happiest and healthiest when we live by the principles that God has given us. And when we learn how to live more in our upstairs brain, that bit of us that that reflects God, that bit of us that, that understands morality, that bit of us that can overpower our negative emotions and can get rid of anger and hatred and even fear, the more we can learn how to do that in our lives, the more we'll look like Jesus, the more we'll look like God, the better we'll be able to deal with our anger, the happier and the healthier we will be, and God willing, that will lead us all to the place where we all want to find ourselves hopefully very soon together in God's kingdom.